I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Daniel. I know I did. He's incredibly lucid and his insights are very deep and comprehensive. Uh, and probably because he is so attentive to that uh, clarity that, that uh, of what he says. Um, when we started off, uh, it's the morning for me here in England. It was late at night, middle of the night for him in the USA. And um, we've never talked before. Uh, and Daniel said, well, look, look, maybe we should get to know each other in this time. And then, you know, I can because the things that you're interested in, the philosophical issues are. I feel like I, I, I'm reticent to talk about them in public before I'm, re you know, I feel ready. Um, and I completely get that. Um, but I'm very pleased to say um, I stopped recording and uh, politely asked if it was possible that we could record anyway, just because um, I know that when we're spontaneous and these conversations are just that, they're just me having conversations with people that I'm really interested in. Uh, that so much of the the magic can can go from the first conversation never makes it into the the subsequent one because you've already met so um i suggested we just recorded it anyway and if he didn't feel like it had le reached the level of clarity or he was concerned about the way things had gone then i'd just keep it private um uh, but i think we had a phenomenally interesting conversation i i loved it and at the end he was more than happy for me to share it as part of this What Is Life series. So I'm going to do that. And here it is. Enjoy. <clears throat> so, um, okay. So we've got this chance to get to know each other. Um, so the premise that's making me the premise that's making me do the uh, this what is life thing and why it gets into all of these spiritual areas for me. Um, I was thinking about it, waiting for this to you know to to meet up with you. It's that it feels like on your website. I read this the line you you, you said you're interested in civilization design. I just thought it was such a fantastic phrase, and I love that. And then it seems to me that actually how we see everything eventually lies on what we think reality is yep. and that it and that, that really to get to those places somehow we have to start with with that hence the kind of like what is life what is existence of coming in on that as a starting place and going okay so what you 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 have thought hugely about these areas sense making evolution civilization design but underneath it there will be an idea about what reality might be and kind of wanting to start there to have the conversation rather than jump straight into the to the other stuff. But I think what you said, which is how we would want to design a civilization has to be grounded in a metaphysics, um, is true for philosophers. I think you and I probably both have this experience of like, well, what is a desirable civilization is fundamentally an existential and ethical question. What is yeah. good, right? Yeah. And then what is good is going to be bound to what is real. How do I know what is real? So foundational ethics, aesthetics, ontology, epistemology, like our preceding theory of governance or design or economics or anything else. I don't find that functionally that's true for most people. Um, most people have 
uh, felt sense of what is real and what they desire that's enough for the basis of their behavior and the interaction of their behaviors and the kind of emergent game theory and topology of that guiding the world. Um, it doesn't have to have an integrated metaphysics and almost never does. <laughs> but isn't it there unconsciously? Isn't there, isn't the, isn't the feeling that you were, you were, you were mentioning before we started recording this, that, 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 there, there, the, the, we, the, these areas are difficult to handle precisely because there is a mainstream view and, and, it, and it percolates. The thought I was having before we, we, we talked was, if all of the, if metaphysics, spirituality, for instance, if that's all just baloney, then you know, it's great that we've left it behind. But if it's actually pointing to something about the nature of reality and that the, the mystics through the ages weren't just crazy, well-meaning people, but were actually exploring an, a certain level of what's real, then if we don't factor that in and we don't make it conscious and we don't see that it's relevant, we'll be constantly missing. We won't be dealing with, with, with reality and therefore we won't function anywhere near as well as we might. I I hear you partly saying that the philosophy of science is an inadequate epistemology for understanding the real, that it's a way to understand the objective, but not the whole of the real, and that we've kind of conflated objective and real as synonyms, when objective is more right to think of as a subset of the real. So then the question is, what is the expanded epistemology that includes but transcends the philosophy of science that can give us a relationship to the real as a basis to understand and relate with what is, which will also then be a basis for choice. Can um, I just take that word for word and put that in my next book? That was beautifully put. That was exactly what I was trying to say. So that's kind of partly what I'm hearing you say is the need for the upgrade to epistemology. And then partly what I'm hearing you say is that there's a, there are interpretations of modernity and physicalism that lead to nihilism. And uh, that there is a desire for some grounding basis for something other than nihilism. Um, and so a question of, is there actually meaning? And is the nihilism emergent from physicalism partly because physicalism is inadequate? Yes, Yeah. exactly. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, yes. Physicalism is necessary, but not sufficient. I wouldn't say physicalism. The philosophy of science is necessary, but not sufficient. Physicalism is the kind of ism that the philosophy of science is, is sufficient. Um, the idea that what is fundamentally real is physics is physical matter stuff, third person stuff. And first person stuff is either then illusory, like in radical eliminativism, or it's a epiphenomena. Yeah. Um, and usually an a-causal epiphenomena, though there are some examples where it's an epiphenomena that then has exerts top-down causation through quantum yeah. mechanics or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, roughly we can say you have the domain of third-person stuff and the domain of first-person stuff, right? Matter and physics. Uh, and then experience, whatever you starting to get into words like consciousness, subjectivity, experience, whether we think of those as synonyms or all different. This is one of the reasons why 
I'm a little hesitant here is because I find that a lot of the wrong thinking is because is embedded all the way down to the words, the semiotic. I completely uh, agree with you, Daniel. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So I'm going to try and do like a very high level where I'm treating certain words as if they're synonyms where I think actually getting down to where they're not is pretty important. Yeah. But if we, if we just kind of take the classic philosophic dualism thing of this mind stuff and this matter stuff, and you've got a kind of philosophy of science that says the matter stuff is primary, and then there's correlation between the matter stuff and the mind stuff, it seems, because it seems like when people describe being in different subjective states and we're doing uh, EEGs on them, that we see the neural correlates of consciousness, which means certain corresponding third-person objective brain states corresponding with certain first-person dynamics, first-person experiences. But then the assumption is that physics is a causally closed system. Yes. So the brain state, this moment is the result of a brain state a moment ago unfolding by particle physics in the brain fundamentally. And so to the degree that there is correlation between this third person brain system and first person, first person must be an acausal epiphenomena. And you kind of have that model, right? Phys physicalism with a lot of different sub flavors. But you also have that the philosophy of science started with theory of measurement, right? So we're going to measure some stuff. We're going to look for things that are both measurable and repeatable. Um, and so there was already an ontologic assumption that what is real is third person measurable stuff. And so we're going to go figuring out what is real by measuring stuff and then repeating the stuff. There's a certain assumption about ontology that was baked into the epistemology. So we got an epistemology that was good at looking for those ontologic things. So of course, then it says what's real is the stuff that we were looking at. Whereas for instance, if I look at kind of Buddhism and the coming out of the Vedantic tradition, they answered not what is real is what's measurable and repeatable, but what is real is ex ex what I am experiencing prima facie, a little closer to Descartes inquiry on that, right? Mm -hmm. I might not be what I think I am, but the prima facie experience of thinking, the self-referentiality of that, I am. And so for them, it's like, maybe all this physics out here is all a dream. Maybe this is all a hallucination. So what I can know for sure is that, that experience is arising. So first person is for sure. And third person is either illusory or an epiphenomena of first person. And but again, their epistemology, which is kind of inquiry into the nature of experience, the phenomenologic inquiry, was based on also a kind of ontologic assumption that what is real is ex experience. And they started that, right? There's this whole process that says, notice the tree, notice that you aren't the tree, you're the noticer of the tree. Now notice your thoughts, notice that they can come and go, notice that you're not the thoughts, you're the noticer of the thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. And so then they point out you are the witness and but they were actually only able to do that by starting with there is the subjectivity and objectivity bound to then be able to say subjectives primary in the same way that measurement yeah. is a measurer measuring a measured they're bound to then be able to say the measured is fundamental and the measurer isn't so you've got like yeah idealism physicalism and then dualism which is kind of sloppy and then attempts at some kind of integral monism, like Bohm tried to do with an implicate order. Um, and I would say that I would say that kind of 
Vedantic idealism and physicalism are both reductionist in exactly the same way, but it meters of each other. And uh, most methods of dualism are just sloppy. And they're not also not asking, is the relationship between subjective and objective part of the class of subjective or is it part of the class of objective? Or is it neither? Is it a third distinct ontological class? That insight helped this start really getting more formal for me. This came from Forrest Landry's uh, Metaphysics, um, who should really be on your show. Um, okay. But I don't, I don't, know, I don't know Forrest. Forrest, um, Forrest oh. developed something called the eminent metaphysics, an integrated formal metaphysics that claims to be at the upper boundary of what a metaphysics can be. Um, and it's definitely the, the closest thing to something that matches that claim that I've encountered. So, so um, before, before you get into him, though, I just, I, I just, I just yeah. need to say this because I, you know, I speak to a fair few people um, along the way. Um, that is the close, what you've decided there is the closest to my own perceptions that I've probably heard, which is exciting. Um, exactly that. This is the thing here. This is the thing there. I've come personally much more from the um, idealist uh, Eastern approach, not just Eastern, but mystical approach. Yeah. That's been my background and where I've had to notice the assumptions. And it's taken me taking me a long time to notice my own assumptions uh, it's yeah. been it's been tough and and one of the things which caused a bit of a stir recently was coming out and making a little video saying that i was wrong in 33 of my 35 books and uh, precisely through seeing the level of that because it's so hard to see so it was really exciting to hear you just put, say so clearly those two perspectives and why they're both kind of mirrors of each other i completely get that and what i would say instead is that the impulse to see the correlated things and ask which one is causally primary ends up being a mistaken impulse. And that this inquiry is happening where there is a, a subject considering an object and then asking about the fundamental nature of subjectivity and the fundamental nature of objectivity. And, and then usually forgetting to think about the fundamental nature of the relationship between subjectivity and objectivity. Uh, yes. So, so the phrase which works for me right now in trying to express this is, is, is going, look, the, the mistake I hear in sort of Advaitic philosophy and all that stuff that I've been around is that it's all one, but actually it's more interesting. It's actually the one in relationship to itself. And that, that oneness, the word that, that I would use for it is, is it, what exists, being, in relation to itself in a process of becoming. And so everything, and this I think is the great insight of physics now, everything's relationship, everything's relational. Everything, time, space, energy, everything. It's, it's all relational information, which is describing uh, uh, the qualities of being. And that therefore, there is no subject and object separately. There's only the object sub subjectively perceived and that subject and object relationship goes right down into the, actually, I think it goes into numbers, but it certainly goes into um, uh, the, the quantum particles and physics and all that. And then right the way up to you and me, where the world I perceive is the world I perceive because of my nature and that everything has that interconnected subject object 
and, and that the evolutionary process isn't, isn't an objective one. It's a relational one. Yeah. And, and that's what's been going on for 14 billion years. Whenever we say something like um, Vedic philosophy or even worse, Eastern philosophy, yes, which yes. <laughs> different schools of philosophy. Yes, very, not, very not good point. Good. And so specifically at minimum, six primary schools of Vedic yeah, philosophy. Yes, absolutely right. The school called Karma Mimamsa, which comes right before Vedanta in the set of six, uh, actually put forward a, my understanding of it, a triadic fundamental ontology that was actually critical to understand the way Vedanta talked about oneness, which was a oneness of plurality rather than the oneness of singularity. Yeah. And so they had... You know, you can think of it superficially as Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, but um, but it related in the kind of core philosophy to the knower, the known, and the process of knowing, or the observer, the observed, and the process of observation, the measure, the measured, and the process of measurement, yep. subject-object relationship between them, yep. and that those were seen as co-defining, co-arising, distinct but inseparable, and that the oneness was the oneness of plurality of those always occurring together, but that that includes fundamental distinction. Yep. Yep. That's it. And, and yeah, of course, you're absolutely right. And, and I'm, you know, you, we use these shorthands like East and West It's just ridiculous, but, um, but yeah, that, that, that you can see these resonances that come through. You mentioned dialectics fair amount. I think there's a lot in dialectical thought, which is trying to point to this, to this, the same thing. So, 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 you know, our original conversation was to, was, I had in mind was to say to you, you know, what, what for you is your um, thing? And I know you, 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 you might not be comfortable to explore it publicly, but what, you know, why is that first? That's an interesting thing for this thing that may not go live. Why? I'm fascinated. What, what is it that you, that you, you're reticent about and what actually is your, underlying view of reality, would you say? Uh, what is my underlying view of reality? What, all right, and, let, 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 let me come, let me just forget the reasons why you might not be, might not be comfortable. We'll get back into that later. I am intrigued by that. Um, I, what I'm trying to say is, I, what I, what I, I want to, let me, here's Tim, he's 61. He's going to die within the next, whatever, 30 years for sure. Well, probably. And I'm doing my best to make sense of this. And it's not just a theoretical thing. It's my life. And it affects everything I do every single day to make, to really take in what's happening, to what it is to be alive and to experience it with depth and to meet it with love. What when I what's Daniel's what's Daniel made of it on his I'm sure strange journey through all of this? So I'm, I'm thinking around how to construct this. So the, 
place that I want to start is where Lao Tzu started. The first verse of the Tao Te Ching is the Tao that is speakable is not the eternal Tao. And the knowledge that is knowable is not the eternal knowledge, which was a pre-statement of Gödel's incompleteness theorem or um, <laughs> Arsky's incompleteness theorem. I've never thought that. That's beautiful. And it was in the later theorems in Gödel and Tarski, um, and similarly Heisenberg and Bell's theorems, which were all upper bounds of knowability. They're actually logic's ability to recognize the limits of logic relative to reality. Mm-hmm. And so with Gödel's theorem, you get that you can have a system that's consistent or complete, but not both. The, the system of math has a fundamental infinity involved, which logic can't do, the fundamental infinity. Um, and yet there's this very interesting question of what was running in Gödel in his awareness that was not math and what was running in Tarski that wasn't a formological system that could recognize the limits of the formological system. Right? Right. So I think the moment we try to say, here's the sense I've made of reality, and I'm going to convert all of reality and what is real, what is meaningful, the true, the good, the beautiful, I'm going to try to convert that to a couple sentences or to a book. It's definitely going to be wrong. And then to the degree I try to live based on that model, it's going to suck. And to the degree to which I really try to push for intellectual congruency, I can tell it's wrong. And so then I'm left either searching more or with some kind of nihilism or having to, at some point, suddenly lie to myself that one of the things that I'm thinking about that's kind of squishy is more logically sound than it really is. Um, the, the, the biblical have no false idols. The way that I relate to that is if reality is sacred to me, then no understanding of reality that will always be a information compression on reality, less than reality, is sacred to me. I don't make my model an idol. And so I'm actually not, my confidence margin on any belief system about the world is never 100%. And my connection to the world is not mediated through them. So the reason I'm saying this is because we're having a conversation in words as philosophically interested people, but do you um, mean when you say it's not mediated through them? Do you mean it's not entirely mediated through them? Yes, you're not entirely. Yeah, yeah, because it presumably is but, mediated through them to to some degree. This is something we should come back to. Um, so, my felt sense and experience of life and the meaningfulness and the beauty of it exists independent of any cognitive models I have about the nature of aesthetics and ethics. And um, there's a quote by uh, Joseph Campbell. I don't remember it exactly, but it was something to the effect of that we search for the meaning of life when we don't feel connected to the feeling of aliveness. 
Um, but what we're actually really looking for is the felt experience of full aliveness. And the shadow of that is the idea of what is the meaning of life. And I don't think that's the whole truth, but I think it's an interesting insight. So um, I can come back to that thing of what is base experience? What is modeling? What, like what are the modes of perception and consciousness and how do they relate to each other? Um, but the reason I wanted to start with this is to say, I can share some models about ontology. What do I think is real? And what do I think the nature of consciousness and meaningfulness and evolution are in time? And I know that everything that I'm saying is at best partial. Yeah. That's sane, I would say. Yeah. So do you want to go somewhere with that or do you want me to yeah. come back to just modes of perception? Well, uh, let me let me just um, let me just res respond to by you know by uh, agreeing the, the so for me the foundation um, I wrote a book my book before the last one was called the mystery experience so so for a long from for for decades really uh, part of what I felt my role was was just to talk to people who are going Psst, have you noticed you don't know what this is. And that was it. It was like, it's just to encounter the mystery. So that profound sense of mystery is absolutely the foundation. It never goes. And it ne it's never diminished. And then alongside that, over the last 10, 15 years, um, my emphasis has been much more on, okay, so, you know, to use a very crude analogy, if we want a map of the terrain, the map will never be the terrain, the menu's not the meal, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a handy thing to have, and it can be better or worse and it will govern how we think about it and it will govern how we act and what we do and what we value and and changes in it can open up a perception which you didn't have before of something about the nature of life so when you get a more expansive understanding suddenly your actual reality can expand and so holding those two together in what i call a kind of paralogical pair so it's not choosing one or the other, but being able to sit with a mystery and this is my best guess, but it's not, well, it's not just a guess. It's the best guess that I've been able to think about it and push and pull and doubt. And, and, it, and this is, this seems to have some value. This, this accounts for more of my experience and more of what I know of the experience of others than anything else I've got so far. And these areas still don't make sense. And this area doesn't make sense, but this area is beginning to perhaps. That's kind of where it feels like this stuff is of value. Yeah. Um, a way I relate to what you're saying right now is um, there's a certain kind of, you can call it spiritual maturity, emotional, psychological maturity uh, that has to do with comfort with both uncertainty and certainty yeah and it's easy to have to err on the side of either of those mm -hmm. um erring on the side of certainty we know what that looks like it looks like you know fundamentalism and it usually is seeking security by being over certain about what reality is but the kind of um postmodern compensation that any certainty is going to be some kind of bad imperialism so i'll just uh laud uncertainty uh it is also a bias. Yeah. And I want to be seeking increased certainty so that I can make better choices, but I don't want false over certainty. So I want to be asking, 
what is my confidence margin on a particular thing based on what epistemic process and what is the right epistemic process for the domain? And what level of confidence do I need to act factoring the consequentiality of non-action as well? So given that, what the fuck's going on? What do you think this is that we're in? What is this experience we're having? What's your best guess right now? Work in progress. When you say what is this, do you I mean, mean literally? I mean, I literally, what is this? What is this thing that we're in? We're having this human experience. What the hell is it? You mean like, do I have an origin story on whether I think the Big Bang or the simulation hypothesis or? That may, maybe, maybe, but I don't necessarily mean that. I mean that I mean that we're faced with, you know, you know, maybe I'm saying more about me here and just kind of seeing what your response is. But, you know, I wake up every morning and this is happening. And it's been going on for a long time and it keeps changing and it keeps getting deeper and more interesting. And so I, quite, I think what I'm kind of asking is, is, is really that it's like, hey, Daniel, what 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 do you, what do you think? You, what, what is it that we're experiencing here, actually? And, and what should we do with it? And that's individual, that's collective. It's like, um, does that make any more sense? Am I still being inarticulate? Well, it feels like a lot of different questions together, all of which are actually kind of hard. Because when I say, what are we experiencing? <laughs> I have, what is the nature of reality? My core ontologic question. Yep. Then I also have, what is the nature of experience? And how does I- Go for the first one. And then then let's head for the second one, maybe after the first one. I don't feel like I can do it justice in any, I mean, at all, but even <laughs> the I could do it in a reasonable amount of time. Sure. Because the, I mean, I can tell you reality models like the simulation hypothesis or the um, physicalist Big Bang hypothesis yeah. or the Teilhard de Chardon model, and I can tell you what I think is wrong with them. Right. Um, in terms of the description of reality. And then I can say what that kind of points to, but to try to say, what is the nature of reality is gonna have. Okay, let me phrase it, let me phrase it differently that might appeal to you more. What, What does it help if I say, and we don't have to go down this road, you know, we can go down any road. It's just lovely to talk to you. Um, uh, would it, would it, would it be easier if I said of all the models that you are aware which is the one that attracts you as the most um, adequate, given the inadequacy of all of them and Lao Tzu's first line? Um, I think 
I think the Terre de Chardon line of inquiry kind of intersecting with the Bohmian line of inquiry uh, is interesting and good. And I kind of came up through that. And then I think when you start to look at, say, Stuart Kaufman's work, mm -hmm. um, some parts get added. Uh, I think the question around, and I heard you uh, talk about this, I think, in a TED talk, um, is consciousness or mind an emergent property of biology or life that evolved at a certain point? Um, I think that's a very problematic idea. Um, and so what is fundamental and what's evolving? Are the constants constant? Are the laws a priori or are the laws evolving? If it's all emerging, what is the basis of emergence itself, right? These are, is emergence fundamental? There's some very deep questions in there. Yeah. Um, and the nature of time, there's assumptions built into the idea of evolution about the nature of time. And so we have to get into that. And of course, to get into that, we have to get into the epistemics of how would we know? How would we base that proposition? Mm -hmm. um, so what we end up coming to is just a handful of really hard problems, like some generally good feeling kinds of things that seem to answer some stuff and some really hard problems at the boundary conditions. Um, the best answers I have seen towards those really hard problems in an integrated fashion so far is this eminent metaphysics that I was telling you about, that um, it actually did this beautiful thing where it was able to express Gödel's theorem and Tarski's theorem and Bell's theorem and Heisenberg's theorem as special case instances of a generalized theorem of the ontologic upper bounds of knowability within a domain. And then it was able to create a metaphysics that showed that it was the upper bound of knowability across all domains, mm. which means that like the Tao Te Ching, it's, it's still saying there is reality outside of this, but this is the upper bound on what you can do with models. Um, what was the guy's name again, Daniel? Forrest Landry. And that I'll connect you with him. He should be on here, but you'll, you need to take a meaningful amount of time because one of the yeah. one of the places where some of the breakthroughs occurred was him really formalizing semiotics. Okay, um, and that there ended up being quite a lot of bad ideas baked into the way we use the words and the way we compound the meanings. Oh, endless, I think. And uh, so there ends up being a lot of concepts that kind of need deconstructed yeah. and then. Um, posited and you know what is the minimum axiom set I can't derive the axioms what I can do is reify them afterwards and say did that axiom set give more reifying power than any other axiom set yeah um, yeah so, so <laughs> um, yeah so there's part of me that wants to dive in and go hey you know, and share with you the ideas I've been exploring around time and and mind and all these things. Um, uh, and it's part of me that wants to, to, to talk to you about civilization because it feels like that's something I, I, find, I find what you're saying about that absolutely fascinating. And I, yeah. Um, so 
so, but in terms of the TED talk, let me just say a little bit. In terms of the TED talk, I think what I'm, because I come from a, uh, a kind of a phenomenological inquiry fundamentally, which has all been about awakening and, you know, all of that. So for me, it's like I look at this the whole time. And, like, and so what I see when I look at this is time, is that one thing changes into another. So, and I also see that what, what happens with, when it changes is that every new moment has never happened before. So something about the nature of time is it's constantly realizing new potentials. And then it feels like every new moment is based on the one that came before in a new way. And it contains the past in it. It's implicit in it so that the past hasn't gone anywhere. It's actually, it's actually not passing. It's actually accumulating. And that everything that's ever happened is implicit in this moment, right? From you know, us connecting, learning to speak English, the evolution of the human body, the big, everything. Whatever's happened, whatever it is that's happened, everything is implicit in there. And right now, everything that Daniel's ever been is meeting everything that Tim's ever been. So that time becomes something absolutely fundamental because it's the accumulation of all of the realized information. And, and then what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm exploring myself, and I don't know whether it's gonna work, but so far it's really got my attention, is based on that, based on that's what every moment I've ever experienced is, is it possible, and now we know that it's been going on for 14 billion years, it seems, and one, with one understanding, and it's got us from, like Brian Swim says, from hydrogen to you and me having this conversation. So it seems to be emergent, things build on each other, and you can't have this until you've had, got this and so forth. That whether it's possible to account for what existence is with a simple idea of emergence, that it is being in the process of becoming, or it's the realization of potentialities in ever more emergent ways, and that everything that has a quality is emergent and that the based quality would be the one thing that everything has, which is being, which is so obvious, it's kind of sounds uninteresting, but it's not, I don't think, I think it is interesting, that there's a, there's a commonality of being, which is taking on all of these different forms, as it becomes, uh, as that process of time or emergence or becoming unfolds, and that because it's the one in relationship to itself, all of that is relational. And that relationality will, will, will first be physical relationality, which is electrochemical and all of that, then it will be biological, which will become the sen senses, and then it will become imaginal. Um, but that's one expanding thing. And um, it hasn't explained consciousness, but we'll leave that for another time. Um, the, but do you, see, do you see what I'm trying to say very quickly there? That's the kind of, so it's, it's the, the thing which has kind of grabbed my soul and shaken me around is like, is it is that a, is there a way in which every we can see that everything so not like the spiritual the the, the the whole spiritual realm as it were whatever the hell name you give to that the whole the whole tradition is that always exists and we fall from it then you've got the scientific model which is we evolved up to being animals and then there's this is funny epiphenomena called the mind or the psyche of going what if this isn't eternal but it is, a, it is a domain of existence which has emerged, just like the biological ecology has emerged, the ecology of soul or psyche has also emerged, and that when you go off into it, which is what I've spent my life doing, it's massive and huge and, and worthy of immense attention and interactive 
not like a, an extra stuck on the top, but the most emergent level that's constantly interacting with it. In fact, it is right now. You know, my intentionality, which is imaginal information, is making my mouth move. I don't know how it does it, but it does. Uh, and so that's the kind of overarching thing that I've been trying to see if I can make work as a as a thesis to combine these different forms of knowledge that interest me, science and spirituality. I, I think what I'm going to say is a clarification that you probably um, agree with or at least have thought about, but it's important uh, starting place for me. To say that there are properties of mind, particular certain types of symbolic representation and formal logic and that are results of abstraction that uh, seem to be pretty unique to humans, maybe starting with an earlier species like Homo habilis or whatever. Um, and that that is kind of a emergent domain that uh, didn't exist before it, obviously here. <clears throat> and that that um, is both an emergent kind of subjective domain and objective, the technosphere, the Anthropocene is obviously a result of it. Yep. Yes, sure, that's clear. The kind of Terre de Chardon idea that evolution was increasing the orderly complexity of things in and basically selecting for emergent properties. Um, what natural selection would be selecting for was something that had some adaptive capacity that was things that came together in a particular way that had a emergent property. Um, and that with humans, you have a the level of complexity to have abstraction as an emergent property that can then contemplate evolution. And so we are the evolutionary process awake to itself and then can consciously implement it, the kind of our Marx Hubbard uh, and friends idea. Uh, I think there, I'm not gonna say that is true. I will say there is truth and there is beauty in that idea. Um, that's very different than saying sentience or consciousness is an epiphenomenon of biology or of neural networks. That's very, very different. Um, like, and you at one point, I think called it soul, um, is, is soul or psyche. And I, this is where we need to define our words. Yeah. Um, the idea of, I would maybe define kind of weak, strong, and radical emergence as three different types of ideas. When we talk about emergence, yep. weak emergence is where things come together where you get more of an existing property that was already there as a result of synergies. Strong yep. emergence is where you get a new property that wasn't there before at all. Radical emergence is the idea that you can get a, uh, a totally different kind of ontological domain. So the idea that the domain of first person that isn't made up of uh, atoms and magnetic fields and gravity and electrons, but it's made up of feelings and uh, sensations and thoughts and longings and emotions, the, the domain of subjectivity is an emergent property of the complexity of objectivity. I'm not saying that. 
Yeah, that's what I was saying. I think you probably weren't saying. Um, in which case, we get to this even harder thing of having to formalize something like panpsychism. Well, that's why that's why getting into that. Um, I feel we're getting into my area, and I'd like to get into yours, but we'll maybe get to that after we just finished with this. But um, it goes back to the thing we, we I said earlier, like the one in relationship to itself. So it's transjective; it's subject and object at the same time, and everything is the relationship between those two poles, and they can't exist independently. And so the whole universe, like right now, it's like everything is is so subjectivity is there right from the start. So like the classic hard problem thing, I think is three problems. Where does subjectivity come from? Where does uh, conscious sentience come from? Where does conscious psyche come from? And I think they're three separate things. So, so subjectivity, which is the real hard problem, the big one, I, my response is it's not panpsychism exactly, or even experientialism, like Whitehead says, it's, although that, maybe that's what they're trying to point to, they're just not good words. It's pan-subjectivity, if you like, or pan-transjectivity. It's, it's right the way down all the time. It's the interaction between perspectives on, the one, on itself. So the subject's right there. That's, that doesn't arrive. It's not emerging. It's there. It, it is itself emerging on, in relationship. It's constantly emerging on other levels. So that when you reach the biological level, um, and I don't, because I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not reductionist. So when I talk about information, I don't mean it's really the matrix. I mean, there is information which has become this. <laughs> We're us, you know, it's, it's real, I think. So that we are reading information. Everything is reading information on every level. Um, and that on, our, on the biological level, I, I wonder whether it's just, it, we can understand it simply as the level of the information being read is so complex now and some of it really matters because with life there comes agenda to survive, to reproduce, to eat, not be eaten, all of that stuff. So that some of the information that, that, that the particular system is receiving really matters and the rest of it doesn't. And it prioritizes information. And what I notice again, when I look at my experiences, it looks like that's what consciousness is. It's the information I prioritize, the stuff that matters and that it's a focused subjectivity so that when I focus on it, it does this. And then the vast, vast, vast amount of information is just being processed unconsciously. But a certain amount of it, I, I focus on. And that becomes lifted up. And as it evolves into the level we've got, you get that sensory and it goes into HD. It becomes vivid. Everything which, which, which becomes focus, the more focused the subjectivity, the more vivid the reality. And then that in its turn is gonna to lead to the processing of everything which is going on. Like the whole universe is building up this, it's like a learning machine. It's like it's, it's, it's learning how to be, learning the, the habits, the algorithms or whatever, it's gonna make it function. And I'm the same. And, and that, that, that once you've got that ability to have focused subjectivity, you can focus not only on the information coming in, but the processing of the information. And that's the beginning of a whole new level of emergence then. Because then you're not focusing on the tree which is there, you're focusing on the memory of the tree that isn't there. And now you've got an image. So you've now got images and then ideas about images and then ideas about ideas about ideas. And you're beginning to see, and then that's giving rise to a whole new level of both subjective and objective reality because it seems clear as day to me that the information 
that I'm passing to you now is not in the funny sounds. It's on a different level. And yet you, there it is, it exists and it can't be reduced to the funny sounds I'm making. So that's more, that's the kind of picture that I've been playing with and that that, that domain then exists now, just like the life domain now exists. And it's not some side effect or anything. It's just a, a more emergent level of reality, um, which is huge, which is really, is, is evolving exponentially. It's where all the evolution has been happening for quite some time. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree. I'm, I'm pausing because, uh, again, formalizing our terms, even exists and is real, um, yes. <laughs> assumes to be synonymous. Um, <laughs> does math exist? Is it real? Are not necessarily the same question based on how they're defined. And a lot of the problems come down to this stuff. Yep. Um, so I'm just going to skip that for the moment. Um, what I hear you saying is that you defined at least three different levels of first person. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember what you called the first one. It wasn't panpsychism, it was pansensing. Or I, no, I, I call it, I, I mean, I, the, the phrase that I, just to differentiate, I call it pan-subjectivism, because it's like, it's what it's saying is there is first person or that, that everything is a perspective, whether yeah. it's the perspective of a, something physical, something um, biological, or something psychological. Right. So... And you know, because you haven't got it, because you because you're not saying it's got some little bit of consciousness in it, or because it's got some bit of psyche, you don't have the the problem of the accumulation of you know the whole problem with in panpsychism of just like adding more and more soul in or adding more and more consciousness in. What would that mean? You're just sim I'm simply saying everything is a perspective. Everything that exists as an independent system of some or a relatively independent system has a perspective on the whole and is reading all the other systems and exists only in relationship to them. And that what exists is the relationship between them. Yes. So now we have to define exist. And this is that Kohan of if a tree falls in the forest, to say something exists posits that it could possibly be interacted with. Otherwise, what does it mean to posit that it exists and how would I know? Yeah. And so interactive potentiality, which is, is relationality, is critical in defining exists. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, if you want, I'll share a something about this that's formalized in that system of metaphysics I was describing that I think is a very uh, insightful way of thinking about it. So we say that perception is fundamental and it's linking a perceiver and a perceived. And that those words are co-defining each other. The words don't mean anything without each other. And that the realities the words point to are also co-defining. That perceiver isn't a meaningful ontic thing without process of perception and perceive. And that 
perception, which is the relationship between perceiver and perceived is more fundamental because prima facie, the experience of perception is occurring. Now it could be that the thing I'm perceiving, the light waves altered on my way here, or the nature of the experience had some distortion in it. So it might not be what I'm thinking it is or perceiving it as, and I might not be the nature of the perceiver that I think I am, but that the perception is occurring is kind of fundamental. This was uh, another way of restating Descartes there, right? Yep. And so then if we, so if we're going to build a metaphysics, we start by saying perceiver perceived perception are distinct, inseparable, and non-interchangeable. And perception is fundamental. And so then we're building a metaphysics of perception, right? And then we can identify there's a few different types of perception that are distinct from each other. And I think the th three that you said map perfectly to the way this is modeled, but then there's a proof of closure that there's not more than those three. Um, so you get a, a, a closed triplicate ontology. Um, so the first one you think call the eminent mode of perception, indwelling in the moment, in the experience, in the nature of the perception itself. This is perceiver perceiving perceived directly. So I don't have any narrative running, right? I'm not self-aware in the process. It's just the experience of perception. So their, their whole spiritual process is just trying to get people to be in that state where they aren't modeling and thinking about it and having uh, abstraction on top of it, but are just in direct sensory experience. Right. And that's where what the perceiver is perceiving is some object of perception directly. But then I, those are stored in memory. And I can actually perceive my previous perceptions, which is one step abstracted. Yeah. You can call that an omniscient mode, standing on the outside, being able to look at it from the outside. And this is where I can not just have my eminent experience of you in the moment, but I can have many experiences of you where I try to now model who you are or try to model how physics works or whatever it is. So this is now the domain of um, knowledge, modeling, semiotics. And I can also take another step back. So I was perceiving the perceived, then I was perceiving the perceptions as the, their own new objects, right? Then I can perceive perception itself, yeah. which is a transcendental mode, which is what Ramana Maharshi was talking about and yeah. Vedanta talking about. And so then one of the very interesting things that that system goes on to do is to be able to show that you don't get infinite recursion on that, that you actually get a kind of uh, ring or loop process between those modes and that there's actually an order in which they process. So when I was saying earlier that my experience of reality is not mediated through the models, what I mean is that the eminent mode actually comes before the omniscient mode. One of the axioms is that a whole class of the eminent precedes a single instance of the omniscient. And it has to, because if I haven't had a whole class of first-person experiences, like multiple of them, then I can't model a single thing. I can't come up with a single model. Then 
a whole class of the omniscient perceives an instance of the transcendent. I can't perceive perception itself unless I can notice what is common across lots of perceptions. Fantastic. And then the closure is that a class of the transcendent precedes a single instance of the eminent. And uh, this is a little bit harder, but um, choice happens as an eminent mode. Uh, an, an actual choice to do a particular thing happens. But the choice is a selection process out of a plurality of potentials. The plurality of the potentials existing in the transcendent then moves into action in the eminent. Um, so, uh, or I can also say uh, a whole series of models are involved in my in the actual neurological processing of any particular eminent mode experience that's occurring. So, uh, yes, I'm not just perceiving through the models, but my perception is being colored by the models all the time. Yeah. Right. So this class instance relationship and the directionality of proceeds ends up being uh, one of the axioms of the system and a proof of closure. Then that system goes on to say that these three modes of perception, eminent, omniscient, transcendent, um, that there are corollaries. There's a, a handful of axioms and that there are corollaries in every domain, that there are instances of each of those modes that define the fundamental ontologic axis of any domain. So you end up being able to take the foundational metaphysics and see fractal-like projections of it within all the various domains. I love that. That's really, really insightful. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure about the last bit that you said was more difficult. Uh, I can go back to that another time. But the other, the other, the other um, way of seeing it, 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 I really, really can relate to. Absolutely makes complete sense to me. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Beautiful, really, really elegant. Yeah, I, I think um, so. For if if we define a metaphysics as something that would ground a physics, right? Um, then a, a physics as per Tarski's theorem, which is defining the laws within a domain. Uh, a physics isn't gonna be able to define its own axioms and if it's consistent, it won't be complete, right? So then the metaphysics is what is the basis by which we are assessing the adequacy of one, one set of axioms over another relative to the base reality. There's something that isn't within that set of physics that's giving us the ability to assess the effectiveness of the physics, right? So this is what you were pointing to earlier. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so, um, so I'm, I'm, well, a, physics is grounded in the metaphysics in western system that'll be things like formal logic and mathematics and positivism and stuff like that um a metaphysics can't be grounded in something outside of itself to be a metaphysics if it's supposed to have a kind of closure so it needs to explain reality explain itself and explain the process by which it explained the other two so that no concepts are imported into the explanation process 
Yeah. And that's where you get a closure on a metaphysical system. So the way that derivation happens there is really quite elegant. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. So I'm, I'm, I, it's been such a delight, Daniel, to connect with you. I'm just aware that it's the middle of the night for you. Um, but I, I, did I get the impression you're a bit of a night owl or? I am. You are. Um, yeah. So I'm aware if, 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 if we were getting to the point where it's getting a bit late for you, then you just need to tell me because it's just the morning for me. Uh, we can wrap soon, but was there anywhere else you wanted to go while we're here? Yeah, loads of places. It's just a joy to talk to you. And and um, we've not we've gone into areas that I didn't expect, um, which is nice. Um, and uh, you've said things much closer to uh, ways that I'm exploring than I expected, um, which was uh, not completely unexpected, but was is was has been very interesting, um, and I've enjoyed that. Uh, but I really wanted to talk a little bit about about society and and the general sense making thing and civilization. There's a whole other conversation, really. But um, let's do, maybe we can just touch on it a little bit because I've, I, that's another area where. So I have this <clears throat> again. I'll just say very very quickly, and then you can take it from there. But so where I'm heading now is I'm wanting to articulate this evolutionary um, metaphysics, the idea that everything can be accounted for as within some very simple assumptions. Um, is that possible? But I'm interested in, I'm, it's not, for me, it's never been just about understanding. It's about what we, what we, about being alive and what we do with it. And so there's also wanting to make it practical spiritually and also in terms of how we, we are evolving collectively. So I've got this word, which I just find useful one of that, that what I see happening is that that or what might be happening is that we're evolving from individuals into what I'm calling individuals which are individuals conscious of unity conscious of conscious that they are the universe and to me the way that I approach that is like well, what the hell else could I be it's like of course I am it's like well, there's the universe and me is there that's how does that work you know it's like I am the universe as Tim meeting the universe as Daniel and what I've been exploring with awakening to the, the, to the, to the oneness of things and the connectivity and the love that comes with that is how that affects how I live and then how we affect how we live collectively. So I, I'm, I'm interested in the, in a movement from this intense individualism, which I think has been very positive but not what I see the thing which I'm opposing in spirituality, for instance, is the older traditions, which are very popular right now of the self is an illusion. The individual's in the way. It's all your ego, man. Get rid of you. Tim's the problem. It feels like, no, I don't think that's at all right. It feels like, no, the individual, the evolution of the individual has been the foundation from which we can wake up to a deeper sense of our being, which is one with the being of all. And that fundamentally shifts then because you're no longer just an individual in relationship to the one, you are the one in relationship to itself. And the more I explore that, the deeper and deeper it you know, comes and goes, but it's gets, it gets deeper and it changes. There's, and what comes with it is this kind of universal benevolence because you're in a different relationship. Um, so that's what I'm exploring in relation to us, how we might change things collectively. And, and my feeling is it, it's been happening for a, a long time. It's just, we don't notice it. So. I know, I know you have some, you know, worries about the way that society's going. I do too, but also it blows me away when I look at history, just how well things have gone. 
and that there's so much more compassion in the world than there was just a 50 years ago, you know, or that my dad had to fight in the Second World War and I'm an Englishman who's never been in war, which is pretty damn rare, probably never happened before. And all of that. Uh, and, uh, and that people care about other species. Why? But they do. Or other races on the other side of the world. Why? But they do. And, and, and it feels like there's this underlying growth of this, of, of, of individualism, of, of, a, of a connection. And, I, and, and so I wanted to, what I wanted to just see is, it does that in any way intersect with what you're exploring or is that a completely different thing? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll say some thoughts that came to mind when you're expressing that. Um, I don't mean this in a way to dissuade the, uh, uh, the work towards a kind of metaphysics that can be orienting to people at all um, in just my own experience. Because when I was thinking about theory of governance and theory of economics and like that, it fundamentally came down to, well, the basis of governance is going to be rule of law. Rule of law is going to be based on jurisprudence. Jurisprudence is based on ethics. There's an existentialism of what is good. We can't fucking answer these things with the philosophy of science. As long as I have an is-ought distinction um, where science can say what is but can't say what ought, then it can build better and better technologies to affect what is with no basis to guide in which way other than market theory and game theory, which ends up self-terminating at increasing power. So how do we get a metaphysics that can, it, is it possible to have a non-relativistic ethics that is commensurable with the philosophy of science that can bridge the is-ought distinction and be a reified basis for a theory of governance? I still like that idea, but I've kind of given up on the idea that in any reasonable time frame, there's going to be some integrated metaphysics that everybody buys and thinks was properly <laughs> derived and properly closed. Um, and so I, I think my ambitions are a little humbler at the moment with regard to that. And, you know, there are many different philosophic views that have led to mm, love and charity and nonviolence. Mm -hmm. And whether I think all souls are separate, but made by God, so there's a divine spark and love thy neighbor as thyself or whether I believe in reincarnation and they might be my mom in the past life, <clears throat> or um, whether I just care about all sentient beings and suffering. And I think that there is no afterlife um, or, uh, or whether I'm a kind of Greek stoic philosopher who has ideas of what virtue is. And I want to behave in others in a way that's aligned with that. I can work with any of those kind of there. Um, so I, I don't need that that arises from a particular kind of theology mm -hmm. or metaphysics. I need that it orients to a particular set of experiences that reify the meaningfulness of life and the sacredness of life that lead to the kinds of emergent behaviors that are aligned with the well-being of life. So you said sacredness uh, of life there, Daniel. What, what, what made you say that word? Um, I said sacredness. I said meaningfulness. Yeah. Uh, and these are both philosophic topics, right? Sure. Um, don't don't, don't let me sidetrack you. I'm, I, I really am interested in what you think, what those are, in the what, what's the thing that we can 
is have you been able to articulate or even begin to for yourself like what those simple orientations might be that could sure be very i'll do it very prosaically sacred and sacrifice have the same etymology and so what is sacred to me is something i'm willing to make sacrifices for oh beautiful and um what is essentially sacred is what is worth more to me than my life Ooh. and if i know what is worth more to me than my life and i make sure that the choices of my life not just giving my life but the, giving my my living is aligned with that that's very helpful and if i hold that life itself with a capital l is sacred and sentience and experiences then i would never unduly harm it and it can be because we're all sparks of the same God or because we're all facets of the same self or because consciousness emerged out of these brains and we die soon and we want people to have the best experiences they can in the short little bit of sentience. Like I said, I can kind of work with any of those. Um, but, a, but there are some views we can't really work with uh, because they orient towards not recognizing life as sacred or meaningful. Um, so you were talking about the no self idea. There is, there is a way that there are interpretations of Buddhist thought that can make someone a nihilist. Uh, because if this is all Maya, none of it's real, including that hungry kid isn't real. And my desire to go feed them is actually the sign of my unenlightenment and ignorance that I bought into this Maya. So that's not just making them a nihilist, it's making them a sociopath through adopting a spiritual idea that disconnects them from empathy and experience. And so that idea doesn't work. And the same idea that if somebody prays to the wrong other god, you have to kill them. Um, or that because it's there's no free will and consciousness is an adaptive illusion, might as well just unibomber everything. So there, there are versions of them that don't work, right? But there are versions of all of those that end up leading to a kind of respect for the integrity of life that orients us to behave as stewards of it. Yeah. And I can, I can kind of work with any of those. But when we're talking about the kind of society we want to make, and we're talking about governance, governance is a process of shared choice making. So then the what is the basis of the choice we make? Well, it's epistemology and ethics. It's our sense-making of what is and what the effects of a particular injunction will be, a law or a technology or whatever. And it's our value set of what is valuable, what is meaningful that we want to make choices in service to. So our ability for collective choice-making through something like democracy or any process like that is going to be grounded in our ability for collective sense-making, which means individual sense-making and ability to communicate effectively and ability to explicate what we value and what we're trying to serve with a particular injunction, understand other people's values and find higher order dialectics of values to then be able to come up with strategies that can meet everyone's values aligned with what we're sensing more effectively. Yeah. Well, I would like to talk more about that one day. That's <laughs> fascinating. Um, and I feel like we've kind of done a whole lot of philosophical stuff, which is, I guess is the kind of nature of the, 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 the conversation I invited you to, but there's so much there that I find fascinating. And 
yeah, it's just been a delight to hang out with your your insights and your well with you, really. Yeah, likewise. This was fun. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we will talk more on uh, civilization topics at some point. And, I would uh, definitely be up for that if you if if you are Daniel. This could be part one. Um, how do you feel about uh, making any of this public? I thought you were brilliant. I mean, I th- you just, just seem just as clear as clearer I'm, than I'm, just by anyone I've talked to. To be honest with you, Daniel, you have a you have a. You have I a, don't know if any of this will be useful to anybody else, but I'm happy for it to be public. Well, you know, it's kind of I gave up on that. You know, it's like like I said, for me, it was it was is an excuse. You know, if I didn't have this excuse, we probably may, we may never have had this conversation. Um, yeah, so I I've been able to go around to a whole load of really interesting people um, and and have conversations uh, that seem I, mean, I mentioned Forrest, but I have a couple of other people I think would be worth coming on as well. So I'm happy to make the introductions. Oh, please do. That would be, I'd be really, really, uh, really, really grateful. And so, yeah, cool. All right. So, um, well, let's connect about part two. We'll, we'll email or um, I don't have your email, actually, but um, Facebook. Facebook works and uh, uh, I'll give you my email there and then we can do the introductions over email. Great. All right. right. Well, good, luck with you, have my a good night. Bye.